Hello, and welcome to this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Kara Sellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. Today, we're picking up our discussion on Strong Poison. We'll be covering chapter 12 through towards the end of the book, but attempting to stop before we name the whodunit and talk about the howdunit. So without further ado, here we go into Strong Poison once again. So Karis, we left off last time with Peter admitting to Harriet that he's dreadfully jealous of Philip Boys. He manages to place, through Miss Clemson, a cattery agent into Norman Urquhart's office. And here we are at chapter 12. He goes off for Christmas revels at Duke's Denver. Yes, which I, I always forget that this book takes place across Christmas. I'm a little bit sorry now that we our schedule didn't work out that we were actually talking about yeah. this uh, in December, because <laughs> that would have been too perfect. But yeah, in the middle of this case, which I'm sure to Peter feels like just everything is resting on it, like his entire future, mm-hmm. literally his entire future, because it's it's implied that he will go mentally to a very dark place if he's not successful in clearing Harriet's mm-hmm. name. He has to go have Christmas with not just his immediate family, but with a bunch of guests. Whomst among us cannot relate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's 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 too perfect. It's a very it's a very funny chapter, but it's just like, oh poor Peter. Oh no. Right? <laughs> so chapter twelve opens with this great line, which is Whimsy was accustomed to say, when he was an old man and more talkative even than usual, that the recollection of that Christmas at Duke's Denver had haunted him in nightmares every night regularly for the following twenty years. (laughs) But it is possible that he remembered it with advantages. (laughs) Such an interesting proleptic leap, you know, coming so soon after he's like, oh, I I hope I shan't have to go to that dark place. It's it's like the narrative is like, don't worry, Peter will live (laughs) to old age. It's like in The Princess Bride, the eels don't get her, you know. I'm telling you this because you look nervous. <laughs> Just wanted you to know. <laughs> and I feel like it's not often that the books do that. They're often mm. written as though, you know, very immediate, right? To right. what's happening. They're, they often take place like in the same year that they're being published. So it's a, I don't know, it's a very interesting little aside, I suppose. Yeah. It almost makes more sense when you think about it in terms of that when Sayers was originally trying to write this book. You know, she had it in mind for this to be Peter's kind of last hurrah. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I almost wonder if this is the line that was kind of a leftover mm-hmm. from before she realized that that just wasn't going to work out. <laughs> that there was no possible way. <laughs> right. But that it's too good of a line to take yeah. out. I, I do. I like that theory. And I do. I do just really enjoy that yeah. line. Yeah. It's possible he remembered it with advantages. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's awful. The next several pages, you just run down in dialogue. And it's one of those, mm-hmm. Sayers does that whole Greek chorus thing so well. Yes. Where she's like, all these people are talking. And just from their dialogue, you're like, oh, I know exactly what kind of person you are. Yes. And in this case, they're very unpleasant. I, I, I have to imagine that they're all like Gerald and Helen's friends. Yeah. <laughs> they're all Gerald and Helen's guests, I suppose, since they're at Duke's Denver. And it's... We've talked a little bit about how this book calls back to other books in the series. And this really calls back to Clouds of Witness, you know, Mm. that that atmosphere of everyone being at the hunting lodge and, you know, especially that first scene over the breakfast table with Parker, right, where we're getting a lot of information about the people 
and about what's going on through dialogue. Yeah. The difference is that none of these people matter. <laughs> like, these aren't players, right. uh, but they're all here to kind of like create an atmosphere, I mm-hmm. guess, which they do very effectively. Yeah, I love Captain Bates, who uh, is mm-hmm. like, I caught Hilda with Philip Boyce's book, and I said, now you send that book straight back to the library. <laughs> um, I won't have that muck in the house. And, and Whimsy's just very innocently like, well, if you haven't read it, how did you know what it was like? And the <laughs> Express quoted all these filthy paragraphs. And <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we've all read them, said Whimsy. Yeah. Forewarned is forearm. <laughs> and then the Dowager Duchess has the wonderful line. We owe a great debt of gratitude to the press, said the Dowager Duchess. So kind of them to pick out all the plums for us and save the trouble of reading the books. <laughs> and then she goes on to say that her maid is a superior girl so keen on improving her mind, which is more than I can say for most of my friends. <laughs> so she's like, you know, I doubt that my maid is the kind of person who would read one of those things. But I just love that there, mm. there's like all this context too about the the sort of social times, right? She says... No doubt it is all due to free education for the people, and I suspect her in my heart of voting labor, though I never ask because I don't think it's fair. Besides, if I did, I couldn't very well take any notice of it, could I? But it's like, yeah, you know, there was free schooling for everyone of all classes is like a thing now, and educating women is a thing, and we'll pick up those threads later on, um, I think especially in Gaudy Night, but... Yeah, the dear duchess dowager duchess yes we don't care so much for the duchess because as helen says immediately after that she's talking about harriet vane and she says from all accounts she was just as bad as he was Mm -hmm. but that leads into one of the most interesting things that i like small single lines when whimsy responds by saying damn it she writes detective stories and in detective stories virtue is always triumphant they're the purest literature we have very interesting. Yes. We've talked a lot about Peter and truth and his devotion to truth. We've talked a lot about the role that Peter plays as kind of like the moral center of the stories. Mm-hmm. You know, that he has the final moral judgment. Yeah. And that that's very characteristic of detective fiction in general, mm-hmm. right? That Right. Mm-hmm. And I, but I do feel like that's one of the things that makes Sayers fairly unique. Like, not absolutely unique, but in terms of the characters finding justice, just like we talked about recently in The Unpleasantness of the Bologna Club, that Peter is set up as the moral judge who gets to decide, okay, this is what's serving justice, and it's not necessarily what is, you know, it's not due process. Mm -hmm. It's not justice through the law. Right. That law is different from ethics is different from morality. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I feel like it's subtle, mm-hmm. but I feel like this is one of those areas where we see Sayers, the theologian, kind of on the edges. Yeah. And, you know, we talked a little bit about how interesting it is when you can kind of look at people's art and it tells you what questions they're asking the universe. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is one of those areas where we see that bleeding in in like a very small way where the question you ask the universe is, is like, who gets to decide what's just? Right. Yeah. Who, who makes the decisions? Where does morality come from? Mm-hmm. And those are all things that Sayers asks more explicitly in her later writings when she had kind of moved on from detective fiction and was really focusing her energies on, you know, theology and Christian apologetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's also, you know, we were talking last time about how this is the book where, it, you know, it feels like she really departs from a certain kind of early form after this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the one hand, she returns immediately to this sort of like 
airtight case, lots of lots of plot, mm-hmm. lots of alibis, lots of timetables. Um, mm-hmm. So she she does drop it a bit, but in in the sense of like we we talked about that she starts taking more risks, maybe kind of tugging at the edges. I think of the detective novel form and seeing what mm-hmm. else she can put in there and. And I think the increasing thoughtfulness about virtue or about morality that points to her later career just becomes more and more evident, right? And I I wonder if part of it was that freedom of knowing that there was an audience for these books and sort of just being like, okay, it's my sandbox now, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna (laughs) think about the things I want to think about through these books. I, there's a part of me that feels that what makes the difference is that Sayers realized that she could tell a a great detective story that was motivated by emotion rather than the plot points mm. rather than by the moving pieces mm-hmm. that becomes very evident in some of her later books especially like gaudy night and busman's honeymoon those books are all about emotions and the like the detective work is kind of incidental mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> which is polarizing for some readers what is what what is like the tagline for busman's honeymoon it's a, a romance with some detective interruptions yeah or... yeah yeah exactly it's not a detective novel with romance it's the other way around my copy's out of reach at the moment <laughs> <laughs> i trust you we'll correct it in our show notes if my <laughs> paraphrase is it's too <laughs> off and she does say in the introduction to the book that the idea behind Busman's Honeymoon was that some people think that a romance distracts from the detective plot, but for the people having the romance, <laughs> the investigation is a distraction from what they have going on. Very true. She's telling these detective stories that center on emotion and like that the the momentum of the plot comes more from the emotional arcs of the characters as opposed to fundamentally the investigation mm-hmm. itself. Which I think is really interesting. And I think, you know, it's a departure from most of her peers who are writing detective fiction in the same time. And I think it makes Sayers a clear departure and kind of step forward to modern thrillers. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about Tana French, who I think is one of our greatest thriller mystery writers of the current age. Yeah. And that her books, they're tightly plotted and they have airtight mysteries and they follow all the rules, but what keeps me at least mm-hmm. like turning the pages very quickly is the intensity of the emotion that is going on. Yeah, very much so. I think so. I don't read a bunch of contemporary thrillers or mysteries. Like I just really like cozy mm-hmm. mysteries. But when I was first turned on to Tana French's work, I like I think I think I read them out of order. Too. I think I might have read the likeness first because someone mm-hmm. was like, "It's like the secret history," and I was like, "Oh, done, catnip, catnip <laughs> for me." <laughs> and I think at first I was really thrown because the the formula is different, right? It's not like a murder has occurred and then you gather all the suspects and you question them one by one. So I was a bit like, what is happening? But then I just got so pulled in by not the plots because so often it's not even. I feel like there's only a handful of suspects, right? It's not necessarily about eliminating alibis or figuring out the whodunit. It's just like the the deep character portrayals of both the suspects, the detectives, the way that they like really fully inhabit a world. Like you you could you just it's so plausible that these are people who just like walk around in the world right. and that they're not oh so put suspect A in room B with weapon C. Like it's there's nothing mechanical feeling about them, I guess. Yeah. Mm. And I think you're, I totally agree that even though Sayers has, you know, maybe more conventional 
plot formulas that she's building these mysteries around. Like, I mean, you know, I'm sitting here holding strong poison and going, this is the third book in which we've had an old lady with a will (laughs) at the center of a plot, right? And like, well, she went back to that quite a bit. But each one is different because because of what they tell us about people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The depth of the character portraits becomes so different Mm -hmm. from strong poison on. And it's not that there wasn't plenty of good character development in the earlier books, but it's just, it really gets taken to a new level, which not everyone liked. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, I like, I, I'm thinking specifically, I know for a fact that J.R.R. Tolkien, I would have to, like, get up and get down my copy of Tolkien's letters. So I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but if I remember correctly, what he said was that she had written some very good mysteries and then ruined them by introducing Harry and <laughs> I I don't want to make the Tolkien fans mad at us, <laughs> but... We can love Tolkien and still think he was very wrong. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. She put a woman in her books and like, okay, Professor Tolkien, <laughs> who none of his books passed the Betchdale test, right? Like, it's just, mm, sure, yeah, yeah. Also, I'm just mad at him and C.S. Lewis for creating an English literature curriculum that got used for years and years. It just was like, oh, yeah, aren't like white Anglo-Saxons the best? So mm. anyway, I have feelings. I'm massive fan of their work and also like, you know, they're just just kind of problematic. Yeah. Yep. You could be a fan of, of something or someone and still have criticisms. Yes. I have some notes. Yeah. <laughs> I contain multitudes. I could not have studied literature if I couldn't somehow separate the art from the artist. Yeah. But speaking of <laughs> Sorry, I derailed a little it's bit. It's okay. Uh look at that change of topic walking by. <laughs> but speaking of characters and deepening character portraits, we revisit a few people that we've met before in this chapter. Yes, we do. We get to see what Freddie Arbuthnot's been doing with himself. Yes, which is so like it's so sweet. It is. For the bit of of our listeners, I'll provide context so that we know where we are, which is that Freddie Arbuthnot is spending Christmas at Duke's Denver. He's one of the guests and Peter kind of takes him off to have a private conversation because he has asked Freddie to look into the finances of Norman Urquhart, mm-hmm. Philip Boyce's cousin. Oh, is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. Oh. Uh, that's how they say it in the audio. Well, I trust them. <laughs> it's like when I found out that, what is it, like the name that is, it looks like Feather Stonehoff, and it's actually pronounced uh. Fanshawe, and I was like, I don't even, I, what is English? What is language? <laughs> I'm glad my suffering amuses you. <laughs> oh, it's because I, I understand. I'm just like, I don't know. I can't even right? tell you. Urkit? Okay, Urkit. Sorry, listeners. Been just saying it wrong. But so, Miss Murchison, the cattery agent that was placed in Norman Urkit's soliciting office, sent a note to Peter that she thought it would be interesting to see if Norman Urkit had anything to do with the Magatherian mm-hmm. Trust, something that had a big, noteworthy crash a few years ago with a big financial fallout and Miss Murchison because prior to being a member of the cattery she was a confidential secretary for a a financier Mm -hmm. she's just like I knew something about this person who called for Mr. Urquhart Mm -hmm. and so I think that there might be a connection so she passed that information on to Peter Peter has gone to Freddie Arbuthnot the person who is is kind of an idiot (laughs) about everything except for 
the stock exchange. He's a genius at the stock exchange, apparently. <laughs> yes. And so Peter asked Freddie to, to ask around. Mm-hmm. And so they're having a private conversation where Freddie is relaying what he's learned, which is that Norman Urquhart was definitely involved. But we also find out that Freddie is engaged to Rachel Levy. Mm-hmm. The daughter of Sir Reuben Levy, who was murdered in Whose Body. Our very first book. Our very first book. And we got a hint at the time mm-hmm. that Freddie carried a torch for Rachel Levy. Well, more than a hint. It's stated <laughs> in Sir Reuben's journal that Freddie wants to marry her. And apparently he's been paying court to her all this time and has gotten her to, or really gotten her mother to agree mm-hmm. To their engagement. Yes. And it's very sweet. He says, I rather got round Lady Levy by saying I'd serve nearly seven years for Rachel. That was rather smart, don't you think? (laughs) And he's referring to a biblical text wherein Jacob serves Rachel's, the biblical Rachel's father for seven years to marry her. And it's interesting, right? Because Freddie says that the reason it took so long was because he was a Christian. And we know from whose body that Lady Levy was Christine Ford, right? She converted Mm -hmm. to marry Sir Reuben. So I do think just in those little lines, you you kind of get the sense that like Lady Levy has been mourning her husband this whole time. She's very determined to like uphold the family traditions. Mm -hmm. Well, and it also, you know, we talked a little bit when we were talking about whose body that there was a throwaway line where... He said it doesn't matter. Mm, right. Yeah. As opposed to it being something important. Right. To enter a interfaith marriage. <laughs> yeah. And knowing that Lady Levy converted, I think it's, you know, it's interesting that we just get this confirmation that she, she stays converted. She right. stays dedicated to her adopted faith and continues to raise her daughter in it, continues to want her grandchildren to be raised mm-hmm. in it. It's not a matter of changing hats. Yeah. It's not a matter of going to a different congregation. It's like a very important part of their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And clearly of Lady Levy's identity now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Freddie is like, yep, but you know, it's all going to be in the synagogue. I I love that. uh, (laughs) You know, he's like, but I, you know, I believe you could, you can come in like as a, not necessarily best man, but uh, Peter says, Bunter will explain the procedure to me, (laughs) Uh, which I just wrote, dear Bunter, lots of dear Bunters in my marginalia. Yes. I do feel like we have to, there is like a little, little throwaway line of Freddy's here. I'm not very pleased about. Because mm-hmm. Peter, like, kind of before they get into the Rachel Levy is going to become Mrs. Freddy part, Peter's like, you know, are you sure? How did you find out about this? And Freddy has been talking to someone named Goldberg, and Goldberg is a cousin of old Levy's. And Freddy says, and all these Jews stick together like leeches. And as a matter of fact, I think it's very fine of them. And I'm just like, ah, like, mm. it's, yeah, yeah, it's just like. Could, that could do without stereotyping. That, yeah, the, the stereotyping, mm-hmm. the comparison to leeches, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that that metaphor, that visual picture, not great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But you know, good on good on Freddie for uh, agreeing to raise his children Jewish and carrying the torch for Rachel all those years. Yeah. Speaking of torches, do you know where I'm going <laughs> next? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I do. One of my favorite yeah. bits. Speaking of torches, Peter has a very older brotherly chat with Lady Mary. And it's interesting because there are a couple offhand comments in this book that hint that Peter has been abroad for a little while. 
maybe mm-hmm. between cases. So, Which I would need to double check the timeline. I believe that that's actually referring to one of the short stories. I think so. Because the short stories were published between, right? Right. Yeah. And I meant to double check my timeline, but I didn't double check my timeline. Wait, is it the cave of Alibaba where Peter pretends to be dead for several years? Right. Because there's the reference at the very beginning during the trial. Mm-hmm. Freddie Arbuthnot says something to the dowager, like, isn't it nice to have old Peter back? Yeah, yeah I'm almost positive you're right, because I know that that book of short stories was published before Strong Poison. Right. I don't I don't want to commit myself because I'm not 100% Just sure. Just do it. Take a risk. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm pretty sure that Peter has been out of the country pretending to be dead for a while. <laughs> As one does. I don't remember quite how long, but it's a it's while. Like a year or two, I think. Yeah. Um, like he's like taking down a drug gang, right? Right. Yeah. And he does it in this like weird, fantastical way, mm-hmm. which if we get a chance to talk about the short stories, there's a lot to unpack with that one. Yes. Yeah. So our listeners have been asking us if we plan to do the short stories or the continuations. And mm-hmm. the answer so far is we're, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we might be very tired. Yeah. We're focusing on the novels. Yeah. You know, it may be, I don't know. It may be fun to do it as like a Patreon or something eventually. But. Yeah. Cause I would love to discuss the short mm-hmm. stories. It would be a lot to do them in addition to the novels. Yeah. So stay tuned. Yeah. Let us know if you're interested in the short stories. Let us know if you would be interested if we did them as some kind of Patreon type arrangement, you know, where we release them as bonus content or or something, you know, just let us let us, let know. us know. Yeah, I do. I I love the extra Peter stories, and I I actually really love the Montague Egg short stories. Yes. Oh, I love Montague yeah. Egg. So. Yeah. Yes. Listeners, please do let us know if you're interested because we would love to do them. It's just a matter of being able to justify the time yeah. commitment, really, because we we do have to balance this with the rest of our lives. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yep. Yep. Oh, to be a lady of right? leisure. Those, those little things called this all jobs that we have to go to what? during the week. <laughs> okay, but uh, back to, yes, yeah, so Peter's been off pretending to be dead. To his credit, I think his mother and Bunter were in on the the hijinks. Mm, right. I have a vague idea that Mary was in on it I as think well. so. I think he told his, like, probably his whole family except for Helen. Um, <laughs> because. Because it wouldn't bother Helen. Right? <laughs> but so Peter's been away, mm-hmm. but he has a much warmer relationship with Lady Mary now than he did when we encountered her during Clouds of Witness. Mm-hmm. They have this sweet little chat and it's kind of led into by the narrative saying that peter he's kind of like he's he's working so hard to hide how he feels that he's really kind of overdoing it Mm -hmm. and the duchess helen indeed observed rather acidly to the duke that peter was surely getting too old to play the buffoon (laughs) and it would be better if he took things seriously and settled down which oh helen you have no idea (laughs) helen will come to rue those words (laughs) Peter wishes, he wishes his own love affair was going off uh, more smoothly, I suppose. So he decides to take it upon himself to help everyone else along. Yes, just being a little, a fairy godmother. Mm -hmm. But I also like, it says that Lady Mary Whimsy, who had arrived late on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. So like, she hasn't been there this whole time. She arrived kind of late and she realizes immediately that something is off with Peter. And it says that she marched into her younger brother's bedroom at two o'clock on the morning of Boxing Day. There had been dinner and dancing and charades of the most exhausting kind. Lindsay was sitting thoughtfully over the fire in his dressing gown. 
I say, old Peter, said Lady Mary, you're being a bit fevered, aren't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything up? Yeah, so she sees through it right away. Which, yeah. also, this has to be... This has to be an error, right? Because he's her older brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does your book say? Did your say mine younger? says younger as well, and it, it never twigged me until just now when you're reading it that right. I noticed it like reading it out loud. I mean, we go like, wait mm-hmm. a second, isn't she? Yeah. It's like the way Miss Clemson's first names switch order between yeah between books. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, between Catherine and Alexandra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that that's one of those things where it's just like the books are always so airtight within themselves. But not always <laughs> with each yeah. other. But yeah, I think that I like that this shows how Mary has grown. Mm-hmm. I think the the events of Clouds of Witness kind of like shook her loose yeah. from trying to play act as different things. And she learned a bit about herself. Mm-hmm. And so like now she's she's grown up a bit. She feels a lot more mature. She's changed to the point where she's stopped being in her own head. She sees other people now. You know? Yeah, she sees other people now. Mm -hmm. I I like that quite a bit. And there are some references, you know, Peter says something about how uh, Mary's been busy with the house decorating Mm -hmm. thing. So, like, Mary has been running a business. Yeah, which is good for her. Yes. And she says, yeah, I get rather sick of being aimless. One must do something. So it's and it's nice that her Mm -hmm. the thing that she's doing isn't like play acting, being Bolshevist or or like a damsel in distress or the, you know mm-hmm. like she's she's finding out who she is yeah but peter peter really deflects mm-hmm. he says i say mary do you ever see anything of old parker these days <laughs> <laughs> i've had dinner with him once or twice when i was in town have you he's a very decent sort reliable homespun that sort of thing not amusing exactly and i love that mary says a little solid <laughs> Oh, and then I love that Peter, you know, he's very casually like, I would just hate for anything upsetting to happen to Parker. He'd take it hard. I mean, it wouldn't be fair to muck about with his feelings. And then, (laughs) you know, not to give too much away, but three chapters later, he goes to Parker and is like, I'd hate for anything to upset Mary, you know, it's just like, don't, I I wouldn't want you to to be uh, just just playing with her and hurting her feelings. She's dreadfully upset. Yeah. So, but he's basically, he's basically asking, you know, like, are you and Parker? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) A thing? Like Peter says, I'd like him to have fair play. And Mary says, well, Peter, I can't very well say yes or no till he asks me, can I? <laughs> Peter says, can't you? <laughs> Mary says, well, not to him. Yeah. He would have said his ideas of decorum. So she she knows Parker well. <laughs> yes. And to skip down a little mm-hmm. bit, Mary's she says something about the house decorating. And then she says, I designed these pajamas, by the way. Don't you think they're rather entertaining? But I expect Chief Inspector Parker prefers the old-fashioned nightgown. Never mind, I'll be brave and devoted. Here and now, I cast off my pajamas forever. <laughs> no, no, said Whimsy, not here and now. Respect a brother's feelings. Whimsy says, very well, I am to tell my friend Charles Parker that if he will abandon his natural modesty and propose, you will abandon your pajamas and say yes. <laughs> it's so good this book is so funny like despite all the harrowing bits the humor just is so good yes oh it's such a i love that exchange so much not here and now and then they uh they're immediately like oh it'll be a a, a dreadful shock for helen (laughs) (laughs) and peter says blast helen i dare say it won't be the worst shock she'll get and i think that mary Mary knows something's up, which I wonder a little bit if the Dowager Duchess mm. has said anything to her because she says, Peter, you're plotting something devilish. All right. If you want me to administer the first shock mm-hmm. and let her down by degrees, I'll do it. 
Yeah. But uh, I just, I love that whole exchange so yeah. much. Yeah, even the way it ends, you know, Lady Mary twisted mm-hmm. one arm about his neck and bestowed on him one of her rare sisterly caresses. You're a decent old idiot, she said. You look played out. Go to bed. Go to blazes, said Lord Peter amiably. Like, they're just, they're so comfortable with each other now. I love it. Yeah. yeah. They have such a, such a good relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Should we skip ahead a teeny bit and just talk about Peter's conversation with Parker about Mary? And then we can yes. kind of wrap that yes. up. Okay. Yes. My other favorite thing. Oh, it's so fun. So it's like midway through chapter 15, Peter goes and... Uh, you know, Parker's been running down this like packet of, of white powder for him. So he's like, oh, are you here about mm-hmm. that? And Peter says, not this time. It's rather more, uh, more or, or delicate matters about my sister. Parker started and pushed the report to one side. About Lady Mary? Er, yes. I understand she's been going about with you or er, dining and all that sort of thing. What? <laughs> like, Peter just... <laughs> and and Parker, like, oh, the Parker's language is so funny because he's like, immediately gets all formal he's like lady mary has honored me on one or two occasions with her company and i assure you it is the custom nowadays for women of the highest character to dine unchaperoned (laughs) with their friends peter has taken god knows how many women out for dinner you know like parker does not have to explain this to him but he's just like lady mary you know i respect her so much and parker's like i ought not to have presumed what did you presume old thing said whimsy (laughs) nothing to which anyone could object said parker hotly and like Parker immediately go like he just immediately assumes mm-hmm. that Whimsy is here to tell him to leave Mary alone. Yeah. Because Parker just assumes that there's no possible stance for the family to have other than that it's unsuitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says, from your point of view, that Lady Mary Whimsy should dine in public restaurants with a policeman. This is where one of your favorite lines comes in. Yes, Peter says, what a perfect Victorian you are, Charles. I should like to keep you in a glass case. Of course you haven't said a word. What I want to know is why. For the last five years or so, you have been looking like a demented sheep at my sister and starting like a rabbit whenever her name is mentioned. What do you mean by it? It is not ornamental. It is not exhilarating. You unnerve the poor girl. Why not slap the manly thorax and say, Peter, my dear old mangle wurzel. I have decided to dig myself into the old family trench and be a brother to you. Oh, it's so funny. Parker, you know, not daring to hope. Do you, are you asking me? I'm asking you your intentions, damn it, said Whimsy. And if that's not Victorian enough, I don't know what is. It's just, it's the best. And then I love that the very next chapter starts to chronicle Lord Peter Whimsy's daily. Okay, so the very end of this scene uh, Parker says, we actually have located the, the packet of white powder, but unfortunately it's soda bicarbonate. So it's not mm-hmm. arsenic. It, it closes down one of the leads that they were pursuing. Right. Because they found out that before he went home to his cousin's house, Philip Boyce stopped in a pub, asked for mm-hmm. a drink, and took a dose of something out of a white paper packet, which sounded very promising yeah. for the suicide theory. And by an incredible, unlikely stroke of luck... They locate this white packet, and it turns out that it was nothing more than bicarbonate of soda. So it's just like, ooh, he took a pill. What was it? And they, like, hunt all over for it, and then they find out that it was a tub. Exactly. Which is deeply unfortunate. Extremely disappointing. And then the very next chapter starts. So Sir Impey Biggs agrees with me, because he observes curtly, very unfortunate. (laughs) And then the narrative says, to chronicle Lord Peter Whimsey's daily life during the ensuing week would be neither kind nor edifying. An enforced inactivity will produce irritable symptoms in the best of men. 
nor did the imbecile happiness of Chief Inspector Parker <laughs> and Lady Mary Whimsy tend to soothe him, accompanied as it was by tedious demonstrations of affection for himself. <laughs> I, just, I love that. It's like, okay, yes, they got engaged. And now Peter's like annoyed that he brought it up because they're like you know, lovering around him. <laughs> He's just like, nah. yeah, the imbecile happiness. <laughs> just, oh. Yeah, oh, that's so funny. Yeah, so, I mean, we've got two long-running relationships wrapped up in this book with Freddie and Rachel Levy and good old Parker and Mary. Gonna tie the knot. Yes, yes. Uh, so now that we've talked about happy things, uh, back to the case. <laughs> back to the case. Well, let's talk about Miss Murchison. Yes. Which we get, we're aware of her as the Cattery agent who's been placed in Norman Urquhart's office, uh, but... Chapter 13 is when we really get properly introduced to her. Mm -hmm. Uh, We spend some time in her point of view because she has, like, she comes to see Lord Peter because he's, he's sent for her. And we get this description of her where she says that she's 38 and plain and she had worked in the same financier's office for 12 years. And then it turned out that he was speculating horribly and everything crashed and she was suddenly without work at 37. I I do want to... Again, just like put a lampshade on the description of the financier. The brilliant financier juggled with so many spectacular undertakings, and he was juggling for his life under circumstances of increasing difficulty. As the pace grew faster, he added egg after egg to those which were already spinning in the air. There's a limit to the number of eggs which can be spun by human hands. One day an egg slipped and smashed, then another, then a whole omelet of eggs. The juggler fled from the stage and escaped abroad. His chief assistant blew out his brains, the audience booed, the curtain came down, and Miss Murchison at 37 was out of a job. It's like such a good word picture, I think. Mm-hmm. And just a little hint that, you know, just it's it's interesting. A whole omelet of eggs. Anyway, just I just just wanted yes. to just wanted to note that. <laughs> um, for no reason at all. For or no reason that will not become apparent in our next episode. But so then we get a short little history of Miss Murchison ending up at the cattery. After struggling to find work because, you know, she's experienced, she wants to be paid what she's worth, and she finds out that people seem to want their secretaries young and cheap. Mm -hmm. But she ends up at the cattery, which is very well suited to her. And uh, she comes to see Peter. He's invited her for tea, and Peter kind of insists on actually giving her tea and, like chatting with mm-hmm. her and not immediately going into business which is kind of kind of sweet he's just like i've, in- I've invited you for tea and tea you yeah. shall have and he insists on pouring out because he's like it's, it's not yes. polite to invite someone over and then make them do the work <laughs> i love how much in the second part of this book like i i always love seeing what peter gets up to but i think mm-hmm. you know he kind of drops out a little bit and we get a long interlude of miss murchison securing some evidence we we're, we're going to get a long interlude of miss clemson going and securing some evidence. And I just kind of love these little glimpses into the ways that they detect and kind of the, yeah. we've talked before about how Peter sometimes sends Bunter because there's like a class divide that he can't cross, right? There's information mm-hmm. or people or places that only Bunter can access. And I think I think this book really points out that there's like a gendered uh, version of that as well, where Peter Peter kind of has to depend on these women to access places and people that he could just never, without drawing attention to himself, be part of, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, just seeing how clever both Miss Murchison and Miss Clemson are in, in terms of how they read a room, how sort of observant they are, and, and the things that they pick up. It's just, it's really delightful. Yeah. But so, 
Peter. You know, Peter has decided that he needs to know more about the will of Mrs. Rayburn. Whom I think we haven't talked about yet. So do you want to give a little background? Yeah. When we were talking about the first half of the book, we spent more time on other themes. And so we didn't talk very much about Norman Urquhart and the boy's family history. Mm -hmm. But an important part of the mystery is trying to figure out who could possibly profit by it yeah that's a main line of investigation that peter takes because one of the main reasons that people kill other people is for profit mm -hmm. so peter goes to visit norman urquhart who is philip boys's cousin the one that he was living with and who is a solicitor and you know is kind of asking leading questions about like did philip have any money did he have expectations of any money norman urquhart mentions in passing that the only person in the family with any significant amount of money is Mrs. Rayburn, mm -hmm. who's a former actress. She's now a very elderly lady, and they, they use the term that she's quite childish, mm -hmm. meaning that she has dementia. She's not able to care for herself. She's essentially helpless. And Peter is just like, he's just being nosy. Mm -hmm. And so he, he asks whether she might have left something to boys. And Norman Urquhart says no because of this family history. And something that really strikes Peter is how Norman Urquhart volunteers a lot of information that Peter doesn't really have any right asking mm -hmm. about. Volunteers to show Peter a draft of Mrs. Rayburn's will, mm -hmm. even though that's something that Peter has no right to see, right. even though it's something that shouldn't be relevant. And the draft of the will is very definitive of like, I absolutely do not leave anything to Philip Boyce and I forbid Norman <laughs> right. Urquhart from giving him anything. But Peter notices mechanically, yes. the narrative tells us that a couple of sort of characteristic things about the typewriter that must have produced the document where he's like, oh, there's like a, like right. the A is chipped or something like that. Right. And there's one of the keys is slightly out of alignment. Yeah. Characteristics that would be unique to a specific typewriter. Mm -hmm. And then later on he sees, is it another document that he sees that has the same? It's the, it's the letter from Miss Murchison. Oh, right, right, right. Because she, she types it at the office and sends him this letter and he's like, wait a minute. It's that typewriter. It has the same characteristics. Yeah, fancy that. He has her find out like when the typewriter was purchased and that kind of leads him down this, what is it about the will that Norman Urquhart doesn't want me to see? Yeah, because it's like, it's very clear that Norman Urquhart forged the draft of the will that he showed mm -hmm. to Peter. And so Peter's just like, for one thing, he could have just pointed out that I have no right to know any of this right. and refused to show me anything. So he wanted me to see this, which means there's a reason he wants me to be misled. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly important that Peter find out what the actual will said, yes. because someone's trying to hide something. It must yeah. matter. Yeah. And enter Miss Murchison. Yes. And so Peter says he's got a little assignment for her. It's going to require maybe some lock picking. Yes. <laughs> which she doesn't know how to do. So uh, Peter, being an enterprising employer... It's like, oh, I know just the person to teach you. <laughs> yeah, so they go on a little a little adventure, a little mm -hmm. field trip. And he takes her to meet Bill, who used to be known as Blindfold Bill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we get this very funny scene. They arrive in the middle of like a, a gospel yeah. meeting. You know, Bill has given up being a thief. He has married and had a, a little daughter. And he's become a teetotaler and uh, very religious mm -hmm. in a loud way. <laughs> and we, we kind of get this backstory that Peter caught 
Bill robbing his safe and asked him to teach him instead of turning him into the police. Which, like, of course. Dear Peter. (laughs) Which... Yeah, which led to his conversion, which led to him leaving an honest life now, and it's just, it's just, it's all very fun. So Miss Murchison gets a, a lesson in lockpicking. Mm-hmm. And I love that Bill is very, um, you know, he's, he's like, he's, he's so lovingly, he like, he gives Peter a lock <laughs> to work on. It's, it's clear that he, you know, his fingers are still a little itchy, but, uh. <laughs> He's determined. Yeah. He's determined. Well, <laughs> yeah, like he gives Peter this, uh, it's a safe door mm-hmm. to work on. <laughs> and, and Peter's just like, Bill, I don't think this was got, but honestly, because <laughs> it's like, it's obviously been blown off the yeah. safe. <laughs> and, and Bill's talking about like how it's not artistic. <laughs> to just use Gallignite. <laughs> like, he's like, like anyone because you Gallignite. Yeah. <laughs> uh... And Bill's wife is just like, what does it matter if it's artistic or not artistic? If anyone's gonna do such a wicked thing <laughs> and it's, it's so it's jolly it's a jolly little it's so jolly interlude. yeah it's a very it's a very dickensian aside i feel like yeah and then so miss murchison duly armed with the lock picks is uh dispatched back to the office and i love this whole interlude where it's like you know it points out women's work it points out how women both in this time and in all subsequent times, like, get undervalued in the mm. office. Yes. She comes up with this excuse to stay late at the office, uh, which is that she accidentally on purpose, like, leaves out an entire paragraph on the first page of a report that has to go out the next day. And she does this very funny, like, you know, oh, dear me, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm very sorry. I'm going to stay late. And such a silly mistake. And to the other clerk, acts like very, very annoyed that she did this because she had something else to somewhere else to be. And then so everybody leaves and she starts searching around. And it's just it's also like very clear that Dorothy Sayers worked in offices, you know, from these details. Yes. Like there's this one bit where she has to like stand on a chair to to look under some files. And the narrative says the box was heavyish and the chair in parentheses, which was of the revolving kind and not the modern type with one spindly leg and a stiffly sprung back, which butts you in the lower spine and keeps you up to your job. And parentheses <laughs> wobbled unsteadily. It's just like, you know, there's no reason for that little tidbit to be in there other than world building and other than Sayers must have had a real antipathy for the, the modern type of chair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just delightful. Yes. You have Mr. Pond, who's always saying like oh things were better in the mm-hmm. old day we worked harder and neatly and these newfangled typewriters that make you careless <laughs> yes and mr pond kind of shows back up halfway through because he le- he left something and you know miss murchison very quickly makes up a like oh i was you know i was looking i was moving all those boxes from the shelves because i thought was, i saw a mouse and she you know gives a <laughs> nervous giggle she just like knows exactly how to play him yes and she's uh, she knows how to play on his his sexism, mm-hmm. you know, and she does the same with Mr. Urquhart yeah. a couple of times yes. as well, where she's like, I know what your expectations are, and I'm going to use that to my advantage to do what I need mm-hmm. to do. Yeah, uh, which we'll see a little bit later. She actually has a very mm-hmm. funny exchange with him in that. In that yes. Sense. Um, yeah. And the thing that she discovers is not a will, but a letter from mrs rayburn about making a will so right so but there's no copy of or no draft of the will in the box exactly. at all but at least now they know that a will existed mm-hmm. so 
that's kind of like the next adventure that Lord Peter sends a cattery agent off on. And it will be none other yes. than our pal, Miss Clemson. Our lovely Miss Clemson. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll save that for next time, right? Yeah. Yeah, let's save that for next time. Because I like I think that Miss Clemson's adventure will take pretty much most of next episode. Mm-hmm. If we get into it now, we will be here for, for a, a long time. <laughs> you might say an eternity. <laughs> you have that to look forward to, readers. <laughs> I will make puns. You can't stop me. But yeah, do we have anything else we want to say in closing? I think that's kind of it on my end. Was there anything we wanted to pick up from earlier in the book? There's a scene where where Peter is, you know, he's he's really starting to panic that maybe he won't succeed. Oh, yeah. I th- and you know, like he he imagines smashing the mirror in his mm. in his living room, and yeah, it's a uh, chapter fifteen. Okay. So it was the thirtieth of December. He still had no plan. So, but I think that it's interesting. You were pointing out how a lot of the investigation is done by women mm-hmm. on Peter's behalf, which means that Peter himself is kind of stuck in this place of inaction. Like, there's not much that he can mm-hmm. do. He's done just about all the running around and asking questions that he can. And now he's kind of stuck and waiting. And this book has got so many parts that are so funny. And the parts with Miss Murchison are fun. And when we get to Miss Clemson's adventure, it can be quite funny. Mm -hmm. But there is this short scene that kind of lets us in on how Peter is doing, which is not great. Not great not great at all and it's here at the beginning of chapter 15 Mm -hmm. and peter he's very aware that he is running out of time it says it was the 30th of december and he still had no plan the stately volumes on his shelves rank after rank of saint historian poet philosopher mocked his impotence all that wisdom and all that beauty and they could not show him how to save the woman he imperiously wanted from a sordid death by hanging and he had thought himself rather clever at that kind of thing Mm. And Peter is, he's so helpless. Yeah. It's also, this is like a very, very detailed close reading kind of thing. But that line, Mm -hmm. they could not show him how to save the woman he imperiously wanted from a sordid death by hanging. I just, I circled that word imperiously Mm -hmm. because I think on first reading, it's like, oh, he imperiously wants to save her from the sordid death. And then you look closer and it's like, oh no, it's the woman he imperiously wanted. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there's something there about that word where, like, the scene seems to be from Peter's point of view, right? Because he's, like, looking at the bookshelves and the it's sort of like the narrative right. camera tracks with his eyeline. And so it's really interesting to me that he he even recognizes that the, the wanting is an imperious one, right? right. That the, yeah. the I see it, I want to have it, like, in... In, um, in Clouds of Witness, where he sees Mrs. Grimethorpe the first time, and it says, like, you know, 15 centuries of aristocratic breeding, like, road, like, just <laughs> that, like, medieval kind of yeah. urge. Well, in a, in a later book, there is going to be a moment when he kind of reflects on this, yeah, like, early stage of his relationship with Harriet, and he he realizes that he approached it the wrong way, that he, that his instinct was to take and have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting because, like, that same instinct here, he looks at himself in a mirror 
and he saw a fair foolish face with straw-colored hair sleeked back, a monocle clinging incongruously under a ludicrously twitching brow, a chin shaved to perfection, hairless, epicene, a rather high collar, faultlessly starched, a tie elegantly knotted, and matching in color the handkerchief, which peeped coyly from the breast pocket of an expensive Savile Row tailored suit. He snatched up a heavy bronze from the mantelpiece, a beautiful thing, even as he snatched it, his fingers caressed the patina. Patina? 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 The patina? What is language? Okay. His fingers caressed <laughs> the patina, and the impulse seized him to smash the mirror and smash the face to break out into great animal howls and gestures. Silly. One could not do that. The inherited inhibitions of 20 civilized centuries tied one hand and foot in bonds of ridicule. What if he did smash the mirror? Nothing would happen. Bunter would come in, unmoved and unsurprised, would sweep up the debris in a dustpan, would prescribe a hot bath and massage, and next day a new mirror would be ordered because people would come in and ask questions and civilly regret the accidental damage to the old one, and Harriet Vane would still be hanged just the same. So it's interesting that there's the 20 civilized centuries really stuck out to me as like the antidote or like the hand-in-hand thing with the you know, 15 centuries of aristocratic breeding of saying, like, you can have anything you want, but that that is counterbalanced with this awareness that Peter has of, but I can't have everything I want. Right. Or like the idea that you should be able to have everything that you want, except emotional freedom. Mm -hmm. He has that, you know, he's, or he's been raised with that privilege of being like, I I want things, then I should, I'm generally able to obtain yeah. them. But what I'm not free to do is express my despair. And ask Bunter for a hug. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> and the way that he gives vent to his feelings is that he goes over and forces Parker to, <laughs> to not to marry <laughs> Lady Mary, but to, you know, to kind of get over his own pride and, and do the yes. thing, right? It says, um, so in the interim, he has this conversation with Miss Clemson about going out to find the will at Mrs. Rayburn's. Then he says, convinced of his own futility, he determined to do what little good lay in his power before retiring to a monastery or to the frozen wastes of the Antarctic. He taxied purposefully <laughs> round to Scotland Yard and asked for Chief Inspector Parker. And then, then we get into their whole conversation that we've already had raptures over. Yes. Oh, poor Peter. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's where... That's where Peter yeah. is emotionally yep. and mentally yep. and physically. So, um, yep. Yeah. Tune in next time listeners where we'll find out <laughs> if he, uh, if he succeeds in saving his lady love. Yes. And we will talk about Miss Clemson's adventures with spiritualism. <laughs> Indeed we shall. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at whimsypod. That's whimsy, W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes of our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell all your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. Join us next time for more Talking Piffle. Mm-hmm.